Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. It's happening. Cool. Well, first of all, thank you for making the time for this. I appreciate it. The reason I was excited to do this interview is because Gabe is one of the few people from like, I would call it my sort of graduating class of, you know, the hardcore scene or whatever, who ended up having some degree of mainstream success. Like you and Pete Wentz are like the... The two of us that did it, yeah. Yeah, maybe there's someone else I'm not thinking of, but you you guys are the two that, you know, I remember from being friends of friends and stuff back in the day that, you know, ended up seeing in People Magazine and stuff. I'm like, wow, never thought I'd see the day when the guy from Race Trader in Midtown was in People Magazine, but here we are. (laughs) So... So that's how uh, I know Jesse just from, I I randomly just decided when I was living in uh, Ohio, I randomly decided, oh, we're going to go see like VOD or something like that uh, in Long Island and just randomly drove out there because that's what you did in 98. And uh, somehow, I don't even remember how, like him and do you know uh, Spencer Spencer, Ackerman? Another one of those Montclair guys, but somehow or another, I met them. I don't remember how. And uh you know, here it is 20 some years later, we still talk. So, you know, that's just the and power you of the grew scene. Up, you grew up where? I'm from Seattle originally, but I lived kind of right. all over the place. I lived in Montclair for like a year. You live in Montclair? Yep. Right by when, uh, Pathmark. When the Morris County Youth Crew was happening? Uh, this was 2002. So probably after all that. Okay. Probably after. Okay. Yeah. That's so yeah. funny. Dude, what a small world. Very small world. Well, Tell us what you are up to. From what I understand, you know, you were on, I guess, hiatus for a while. And now Cobra Starship is back, which I want to hear about. I also want to hear about the artist group and everything else. Like what what is uh, yeah, what's going on? Well, Cobra Starship, I wouldn't say is is back. I mean, we we released a couple of songs that were kind of in the vault. Our label is doing this thing this year where they're putting out vinyl releases of kind of some of the, the bigger records over the past. 20 years and I just didn't want it to be like cool the label's putting this out I just want to do something special so I thought it was like a good time you know no one's heard from us in like seven years or something uh so I thought it'd be fun I thought it was the right time and you know I just wanted to to have it be a cool experience so I'm on the internet now and I'll probably disappear again in about a month um but it's been fun it's been a lot of fun it's nice to see that that uh people are still interested after all this time well, you did an interesting and I think wise and underrated thing of, at least as I understand it, kind of 
voluntarily choosing to step out of the spotlight to do other things, which I think is probably something other people should consider because there's a lot of <laughs> not great things about being in the spotlight. Tell me, tell me about that. What made you kind of choose that? It's hard. I, I think stepping out of that is, is, is a hard thing to do. It's weird because it's like, it's all you know, and it's what you're used to. And there's something that happens that when you're an artist, you know, even if you're like a broke artist, there's like people trying to like be around you and help and whatever. And then all of a sudden you like start an independent music company and you're like trying to sweet talk some assistant to try to get to someone that you need to talk to, you know? So it's, it's definitely like a humbling experience. Um, and there's definitely think- like a sort of weird, um, I don't know. You get these secret keys when you're an artist. Like you said, even if you're not a particularly successful one, obviously you were, but even a not super successful artist gets all kinds of access and preferential treatment and stuff like that that 100%. normal people just don't. 100%. You know? And yeah, I mean, walking away from that, I mean, I feel like I did a lot of work on myself throughout the years of Cobras. And I think that I would not be able to have handled it or even made that decision to walk away if I had not done some of that work. You know, I think the important thing for me is just like trying to leave a legacy, right? And not trying to milk it for every last last bit, right? Um, and that's also through my personal experience. You know, I, when I got into music, I got into a lot of artists that were not around still um, when, I was, when I was getting into music. And I had this, you know, idealized image in my mind of what they were like. And then all of a sudden, a reunion tour comes around and it just like, I was like, oh, you know, like it, this isn't what it was in my head, you know, like, like it just, it, it, can, it can't be, it can't be, yeah, it can't you're be. a different yeah. human than you were in 2004. Yeah. So, so for me, I always think that leaving the legacy is, is more important. I mean, you know, it's funny. I went through that with two acts now. I did it with Midtown and with Cobras, right. And with Midtown, we did one reunion show in 2014. Um, and it was fun. It was, it was cool. Um, you know, and I think it's more for us. To, to have done something like that. And, and I think people liked it. I don't know. I might be too, like my, my, my bar might be too high of like, Oh, I want it to be like what I was imagining it in my head or what it looks like in the photos. I don't know. What do you think about when bands do reunions? I think that it's kind of, uh, oftentimes selfish because they want to feel the validation that comes with lots of people telling you how great you are. There's an element of it also of giving the fans an opportunity to see something. But it's like you said, it can't be what everyone wants it to be because you're different people, different place and time. Like you can't be 34 years old singing a song you wrote when you're 19 and have it like at least I would hope you can't be in the same state of mind. It's just in the audience is in a different state of mind. I don't like it. I think it's better for the most part to leave people wanting more. You know, I mean, even the best case scenario to me was like Descendants, you know, when they came back in 96 or whatever it was, that's like the best case scenario. And even then it wasn't as good as like when they were actually in their prime, in my opinion. So Lifetime, I, I Lifetime ra- was a pretty good reunion too. I saw I, Lifetime go back to Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like across the board bad. There are times yeah. when it's done well, but I think it's better to leave people wanting more in my personal opinion. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I think that we're kind of um, the contrarians on that. I think a lot of people like the reunions. They do. Yeah, they do. Right. Yeah. And it's definitely a great way to make some money if you need it. You know, so many bands never made a fucking dime, you know, I mean, refused as a great example. And then they get an offer for some giant payday to come back to Coachella. They should take it. You know, if you have the opportunity to make the bag that you never got when you were, you know, living in a fucking van nine months out of the year, you should do it. Yeah. So I I totally get that, you know. 
but for me, I feel like, you know, I started, I started 21, 16 years old. It, you know, I, I did it for 20 years. I felt like it was, it was an amazing thing for me to do. I'm glad that, 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 you know, I learned so much. I mean, I was about to quit after Midtown when I was 25 and I'm just like, I'm done. And then I was like, okay, my friend's like, well, you just spent 10 years of your life, like learning all these skills. Why don't you just use that for something that can take you farther? And I'm like, okay, that's an idea, you know? So I, I felt like I really, I did my 10 years of learning, 10 years of like, of like actually running it like a business. And I felt like I wanted to invest in the next section of my life that could take me for the next 20 years, which is hard. It's hard to start a new business, you know, in, in, in your thirties, it's, in, you know, and start a family at the same time. But I, I love it. Well, tell me about that. What, what exactly is the artist group for anyone who's not familiar? Why did you start it? What do you do? So we started as a management company. Um, I think like most young managers, when you start working in LA, the easiest thing to get your hands into is just like the singer songwriter world doing sessions, this and that. And then slowly we started working with artists and working across the board, lots of different genres. Like I'm, I'm pretty genre agnostic. I actually like not having artists that are all in the same lane. They'll compete against each other. And through working with different artists and labels, indie labels, major labels, you know, so much of, I think the complaints of, of managers and artists is that, oh, all the labels work is falling on us. And so I felt like, okay, well, you know, we're kind of doing a lot of the work, a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, a lot of the marketing. Um, the only thing we're not doing is investing in records. Um, so why don't we just start doing that? And that's really been, been, you know, two years ago, we started the label side. And one of the first things that we signed ended up doing 300 million streams. And that's really allowed us to grow from there, which has been awesome. From reading your bio, it sounds like a lot of, uh, I guess what you could say, the value prop that you offer is your experience of being in the artist's seat for 20 years. I've heard a lot of good things from people who work with Madden Brothers, same thing of like, wow, I'm so glad I've worked with people. I'm so glad that I'm working with people who have been here before and can give me advice. Can you talk about why that's so valuable? Yeah. I mean, I think that... um what an artist goes through, I mean, it's like the cliche of like, oh, the poor artist who's like has everything and is like depressed. But honestly, it takes a big strain on your mental health, you know? And a lot of times artists are having to be put in situations where they're making decisions where they have to either compromise on their art or their vision and, you know, pay attention to the requirements of the business and the deadlines and that kind of stuff. And I Which think is just that- not how artists' brains typically work. It's not how their soul works. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like they don't, that's not, that's the manager's job, the producer's job, like the deadline and that shit. That's not their job. Yeah. You know, I still think that I, I, I do have the soul of an artist, right? Like I think in that way, like an artist, but I also really understand like the business part of it. You know, I think with all my time in the music industry, so much of it was DIY. So much of it was like, okay, the business doesn't want to listen to us. We have to figure it out for ourselves. So I, I learned the actual business by doing it. So I can speak the business language of it, but my heart is still with the artist. And I think that's a very rare thing, right? And, and even some people that, that have their heart in that place, they haven't gone through the experience themselves or like knowing what it's like to be like, oh, I'm in the studio. I'm completely uninspired, uh, but I'm supposed to deliver a record or I want to do this. And it's going to be a record that none of my fans like, but it's kind of what I want to do. So like those kind of situations, just having gone through it myself to help artists navigate it and not even to force them in any direction, but just be like, okay, here are the paths in front of you. This is what happens if you choose this. This is what happens if you choose that. And it's your choice, right? So I think that's kind of the value proposition is, is like really speaking from that experience. It's interesting you would say that because that's exactly how people have described the Madden Brothers to me of like, hey, look, we've been there too. You can do this. You know, the decision is yours to make. Our experience is that if you do this, this, or this, here's what's going to happen. But 
you know, it's up to you. And people seem, artists seem to really like that. Yeah, I, I hope. I mean, I hope that that's something that's, that's like a positive thing, you know? So, and then at the same time, like I'm, you know, I'm really passionate about just building businesses. I like to, I'm a, I'm a startup guy. I like to go from the beginning, work with someone who is it's just an idea, just a vision and help bring it to life and help build the necessary components around that person so that they, they can have a business. You know, I mean, there's, it's funny because when you're in music or you're a manager, it can just mean so many different things. Are you like the buddy that hangs out and lives with the artist and right. like parties with him and like goes to the studio and vibes? Are you the guy that's like hustling deals all day? Like, you know, so there's, there's a lot of different kinds of ways of doing it. You know, for me, my goal with artists is to help them build businesses where they can stay at home and collect checks, right? So it's like, so they're never in a position where like, we have to do something, otherwise we can't pay our rent this month. I love the sound of that because, you know, it's sort of just an accepted thing, at least in the rock world, that touring is how you make money. And I know that that's not necessarily true because I know tons of like solo artists, rapper kids who are making more money than bands that play two shows a year or maybe who have never played a show. And I also know that, especially as you get older, living in a van nine months out of the year, you know, it's not necessarily the most ideal or healthy lifestyle. So I love that idea of like basically passive income. And I think that's something that artists are only now starting to kind of realize. Yeah. I mean, and you do have to be, you know, an entrepreneur to even have like the idea or the phrase passive income to even come into your head. So it's like, I also want to help artists develop that sense of entrepreneurship, right? Because I think that's a big part of DIY. I mean, that is what DIY is. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like punk rock entrepreneurship, and uh, and and you need to have that at any point that you're in the music industry. I think that successful artists do have an element of that. I mean, geez, I think Mick Jagger was a major in economics or something, right? Oh, so, I know that. Yeah. So I think that you you know you do need to have that a little bit, and you need to like think about it as a business. Just because it's a business doesn't mean it's evil. Right. It's evil based on the decisions you make about your business. But, you know, if you want to be able to have like being able to do what you love for a living is rare. Not a lot of people get the opportunity. It's like a big privilege. If you want that privilege to do what you love for a living, you need to work your fucking ass off for that. And you need to take it seriously. Right. Um, which sometimes is at odds of the image that people have in their heads of what it means to be a rock star, what it means to be music, like the party all the time. Um, but the people that I've, that I've seen that are like, the most successful they project that like oh i don't care this is just yeah. happens to me but like you know behind the scenes they're just like day in day out just thinking non-stop about their business i've noticed that exact same thing a lot of those like rapper kids that i talked about who i thought were just sort of these like space cadet like stoner types because that's the image they project on the internet when i've talked to them I'm like okay this kid's sharp i'm not at all surprised that he's doing so well because they actually have a much keener sense of entrepreneurship than you know, 99% of people that we know did at their age. I think, I think the younger generation just fundamentally goes into this with a lot more knowledge than we did. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think that, you know, these kids grew up with a lot of these tools already. So it's interesting. It's, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. And yeah, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but yeah, a lot of people, it's like, there's so much of a sentiment that the sky is falling and everything is bad and awful and like, well, all right. Yeah. There's plenty of things that aren't great, but man, I think every year of my life anyway has been better than the last. And I would certainly rather be alive in 2021 than any other year in the world that I'm aware of. I think that one of the rare things about you that I like is that, um, 
even though you come from like the hardcore scene and the crit scene, you know, like you're very accepting and supportive of new artists who are doing things different than might be outside. When did you adopt that mentality and how, how did you adopt it? Was it a conscious choice? I've just always been that way. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I started the first, the first music that I got into was rap on UMTV raps back when I was like nine. Me too. Yeah. That's crazy. Me too. My, my right. first revolution was public enemy. Yeah. I, I don't remember. I think De La Soul was like the first, like De La Soul and Easy E were like the first two that I got like really into. Uh, and then I saw Headbangers Ball and I discovered Suicidal Tendencies. So I don't know. There was nobody telling me that I couldn't like both. Right. You know, right. and I also liked Madonna and the B-52s and, and my mom was into like jazz and blues and stuff. So there was nobody ever telling me that I couldn't like anything in any genre. And so then when I started experiencing that years, you know, a couple of years later after getting into hardcore and stuff, people saying that you weren't allowed to like Madonna and I'd be like, what? Like, why in the world would you? why would you not like a song that you like? Right. I mean, it's just, it just fundamentally has never made sense to me. So, you know, I, I think it's like Jimi Hendrix said, there's two kinds of music, good music and bad music. And I've just always opposed any kind of like rigid dogmatic thinking in general. You know, the entrepreneurship thing is another one. Like I was always really inspired and motivated by like SST and discord and then victory, like these labels, you know, who are, these are corporations, like literally every, Every label, people's people use corporation like it's a bad word. Every band is a corporation. 100%. You know, there's an LLC or whatever it is behind any label or venue or band or anything else that's part of the scene. So I was always inspired by that because like I never really wanted to be in the band. I wanted to build the framework, you know, for the scene, like build if build the freeways that the scene operates on is what it was always more interesting to me. So I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just never had those kind of, I guess, dogmatic beliefs that a lot of people in hardcore do. It's awesome. So on, on that note, it, and you'll understand I'm using this word deliberately. I don't want it to sound shitty, but it seemed to me like you made a conscious decision to quote unquote, sell out, like starting with Midtown, like it was not an accident that you ended up where you work. Some people it is. They're like, oh, I never thought I was going to end up being famous. But it seemed to me like it was a calculated decision on your part. Is that right? For Cobra Starship? Well, actually for Midtown, because I know you're on real, the real world and all that stuff. It seemed like you were trying. Well, no, with Midtown, I think with Midtown, that was probably the reason why Midtown did not succeed is because we were teetering on that, mm. right? Which is like, you know, we came, we were kids that came from the hardcore scene, right? And we we were like young and cute. So like, it was very easy to like throw us into things. Right. And when you're young, you're just like, Oh, this one person wants to do this. You're like, cool, whatever. Yeah, let's do it. Right. And you don't really think about the implications. There wasn't like a lot of it was new, what was going on and, and stuff we did and stuff seemed, seemed fun. And we want to have fun, but you know, we didn't really think about big picture about the implications and stuff like that. Um, and there were times where we were like, who fucking cares? Other times we were like, no, we don't want to sell out, you know? And that also informed the music as well too. Like, you know, we signed to this label drive through, which was like, uh, you know, a, a West Coast punk punk label, but it was very, the like it was maybe one of the most like mainstream of of the of of the labels. I mean, you, you know, drive through that you found yeah. Glory. Before that, they had this they they broke with this band called Phoenix TX, which was like right. somehow connected to Blink One Eighty Two, and they were on the radio early. So it was like it was a commercial punk label, right? Um, so to to a mainstream kid that seemed really cool and edgy to people in the hardcore scene, it seemed like trendy bullshit. So just kind of depending on which way you were looking at it from. 
It was like trendy the same way like Newfound Glory, like, you know, people people respected Chad and like Shai Hulud and they're yeah. like, oh, Newfound Glory is like my guilty pleasure. Right. 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 So so in that way, it drive through was like a guilty pleasure label. It was right. like not bullshit. It was like it was like, yeah, this is like this has roots in the scene, but it's like kind of a commercial. It can get cheesy, but I like it anyway. I'll right? let myself like it, this. Still like, exactly. You know, and then Midtown with Midtown, like there were, you know, it wasn't calculated. It was like. It was like, I remember, so drive Through did a deal with MCA. So all of a sudden there's a major label involved, right? So we go and have those like, oh, you're at MCA now. You have an art director. So you were on drive Through before MCA was in the picture? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I, I don't, I, I mean, I found You Found Glory for drive Through. I gave them You Found Glory, you know? So it's like, oh, okay. I was on drive Through super early because they were interested in like my first band called Humble Beginnings from when I was like in high school. And when Midtown started, I started playing the stuff like, oh yeah, we're signed here. And so they were just like, they weren't yet branded as like the new wave of pop punk slash. Yeah. Got it. Okay. This was like, they were Phoenix TX and RX bandits were the two bands, which was like, it was very West coast. Like Phoenix TX, like skate punk, baggy dicky shorts, uh, you know, RX bandits were like straight up ska then. Right. So it was like a very West coast thing. I, I just, uh, you know, I had a really good relationship with the owners at the time. And I felt like they, you know, when I, it's a funny thing when I got kicked out of my first high school band, it was like, you know, I was like persona non grata all of a sudden, right? Like, you know, even though it's like a small, tiny little high school band, you're still like, okay, cool. Like you're, you're not in the band anymore. Right? And then I started a new band that the owners would drive through. They continued to talk to me even when I had nothing. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to plan to do this thing. I have this idea of something I want to do. And, and they're like, cool. Like, like, let us know about it. I'm like, they heard it. We love it. Like, let's do it. And simultaneously I had met Newfound Glory and I played, I sent them Newfound Glory and like, this is great. So I sent Newfound Glory signed like around the same time. So all of a sudden the label start to shift, but anyway, so then, so then I don't know at what point, like exactly what the, the deal structure of drive through and MCA was maybe at first it was just distro. Well, I just, I bring that up because it's sort of a different thing of signing to drive through when they were, you know, the tiny version of drive through versus signing to them when they were part of a major, you know, to me, those are two different things. We signed when it was a tiny company, like, they were running it out of their house, you know, something happened. I, I don't know when something happened, but some kind of escalation in their deal, a positive escalation happened. I don't know if it's because of newfound glory or right, because right, right. of Phoenix. Something happened and there was more money all of a sudden. I remember they bought a new house and like, then all of a sudden we we're going into the MCA building. That was for our second record. The first record was like a punk rock record. We did it in seven days uh, with Mark Trombino. They got Mark Trombino to do it, which we love from Jimmy world and, yeah. you know, and drive like Jehu. And like, he thought it was going to be like a quick, punk record done in four days and i think it ended up taking two weeks and he was like a little pissed that it took longer than he thought you know but it, it was like it was still a punk mentality the second record then the situation changed the major label was involved um oh but anyway so i wanted what i wanted to tell you was that that we went in to to have a meeting with the art director like oh you have an art director now you got a major label so mm-hmm. we go and we have a meeting it's like oh this is what i do i'm the art director i'm gonna help you guys the imaging i'm like like you know like we have to figure out what the branding is going to be for the cover it's like and he's like, do you guys have any ideas? He goes, no, we're just, you know, we haven't finished the record yet. You know, <laughs> like, he's like, well, I'm thinking this. And he just had a picture on his wall of like two young kids with their shirts off in a field. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just like, huh, that's like not really our brand. I'm not <laughs> sure that makes sense for us. You know? But it was that kind of thing that like we felt pulled into situations that were like, didn't really make sense to us. It's not like, what you signed up for. Not what we signed up for. We didn't know how to deal with it. We teetered on it. Um, and then when it came time to make our third record, we like clearly put our foot in the sand and we're like, 
we're going to make a record that's not commercial at all. We're not going to be cute in the record. We like our photo in the record is like us with scotch tape all over ourselves, like looking like monsters. You know, the the label was like, you guys have to be on the album artwork. We're like, no, we're putting this old man on the cover with a with a you know sitting sitting at the table with an old TV set. Like that's that's the the vibe. Because they they so, wanted like punk rock boy band kind of vibe. Yeah, because at the time great. that's what was working. Yeah, and we were like, no, so. So, so I don't think it was any, any things that happened in, in Midtown that were, there were sellout kind of things like the real world. We didn't think about it. We did it. And, you know, obviously those things may have helped, you know, people hear about Midtown, but it also hurt us in terms of like ourselves. Cause we didn't, that's, that wasn't our plan for the band. Right. Okay. Um, so when I was done with Midtown, I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm done. I made a great record that I love. We made three records. I'm going to go back to school. And I had a friend, I had a friend who, I remember this so clearly. I had a friend who worked at, at Diesel. And she like, do you remember there was a time where everyone in the scene wore Diesel jeans? Myself you, included, absolutely. Okay, so it was because of, 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 of this person. She just, oh, like, wow. she loved, loved, loved uh, the, the scene and just gave everyone jeans, you know? And and um, and she also, like she worked with other bands, she worked with like, you know, the dance rock bands, you know, and like the Rapture, the Strokes, all that stuff that's happening in New York. And she's like, she's like, Gabe, you know, I go to a lot of shows in New York. I go to a lot, I work with a lot of bands. I go to a lot of shows. And, you know, I, I'll just tell you that I never see the presidents of the companies come out to these people's shows. I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, they're coming out because they see something, you know, they believe in you. I'm like, huh. And she's like, if you just got out of your own way, you could be really huge. And I'm like, huh. And that just resonated in my head. This was at the end of Midtown. And I'm like, maybe I just need to get out of my own way. And that really was, so when you're talking about, was it a conscious decision with, to, to sell out? Um, with Cobra Starship, yeah, my conscious decision was, I want to see how far I can get this without mm -hmm. having this like, this like thing on my back of like, oh no, am I selling out? Am I not selling out? You know, because what I realized is because of where I come from and who I am, like no matter what I do, it's always going to be a little weird. I'm a weird yep. dude. Like I come from a weird scene. It's like very niche. Like anything that I do, even if I go to like a, a big, you know, red carpet award show, or I, I work with this person, that person, it's always going to have my weirdness attached to it, you know? And the, so the other I, thing I've realized is like, people think that pop artists are normal people and they're just as fucking weird as anyone else. Yeah. Like but, musicians, but their references are very bland. You know Th that, yeah. But like, I guess my point is like, you know, there's an I there's a sort of uh, idea out there that if someone plays music that normies listen to, that they are a normie, and that is not necessarily true at all. Right, right. And I think I had to realize that. Um, and then I I just felt like you know my vibe with Cobras was like was like you know we're not really invited to the party, but we're gonna crash it, right? And and that was kind of our whole aesthetic, and it was a lot about like critique of celebrity culture. And like, just by talking about us, it like placed us in it, which is, which is mm -hmm. a weird thing. It was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So yeah, that was, you know, I don't know if it was part of the plan of Cobras, but I definitely said, okay, like I spent 10 years of my life doing this. Am I just going to go, you know, back to school with nothing to show for it? Or am I going to try and see how far I can take this, you know, without no breaks, just go. Which is something that a lot of people probably tell themselves, but don't ever achieve what you did. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. What are some specific things in terms of like mindset or skill set or whatever that you think made you successful where so many other people weren't? I think I completely immersed myself in pop culture. Like there were a few years that I was just like, because listen, there's a part of me that like, you, you know, I think like everyone, there's, there's a part of you that just like, likes pop culture and it's like a guilty pleasure and like you know it's like it's cool it's fun like once in a while you'll like check in and dip into something that like you you find is a very normy thing right so i think for me i just went completely all in on pop culture and i and i just had like blinders on just just to see what's going on in pop culture and and it's honestly it's just that's also a business skill it's like you have to understand what your business is you have to understand where it lives and what what the audience is and what they're they're doing and like be a part of it you can't try to do something in pop and not understand what pop culture is. I think also that's what Pete Wentz always did that was mm -hmm. really good. He really understood what's happening in pop culture. And so for a while there, I just watched Gossip Girl nonstop. And that was really it. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because, you know, I was listening to Cobra Starship here getting ready for the stream. 
was listening to like hot you mean mess. Getting, and, getting pumped up like you do every day. That's right. And like hot mess came on and I, I don't know what's that from like 2006 or something. And uh, I was like, fuck, this song is so mid 2000s. Even just like the title of it, you know, it just really just took me back to that sort of Perez Hilton sort of moment in time. So it's interesting that you would say that because that totally comes through listening to the song even now. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the thing that, that's cool about about Cobras for me is that like, especially now with like us putting this stuff out and the nostalgia is that like, it definitely has a thing, right? It was of that moment of that yeah. time. Like, and it's, it's, it's a cultural moment that happened. Right. So for me, it makes me very proud to be like, wow, like I did something that left just like a little notch on the history of culture for that moment. Yeah. Not I mean, was, snakes yeah. on a plane, that's a song. I mean, that's from what, 2007, something like that. Yeah. You snakes, know? snakes was 2006 and hot mess was like 2009, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, whatever. Okay. Well, whatever. Right. I, I got yeah, my yeah. years a little bit mixed up, but my point is like, yeah, my, my point is that, like you said, it is a moment in time that people can think what they want. They can like it or not like it, but that is a song and a moment that everybody will remember. You can bring that up to anybody and they'll know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when, um, when we were at some award show, VMA award show, and we had just uh release good girls go bad and then jay-z put out a song that he i think he premiered it i think it was it's um new york state of mind and he had a line in it city of good girls gone bad you know i don't know if he heard good girls go bad and then put that line in there but it was just like that was that phrase was happening at that moment you know so it's cool i'm very i'm very uh i'm very proud of what, what i've done and i think there's a lot of people who myself included hold themselves back by sort of saying that they don't want to do something that is of the moment because they don't want to be trendy. They want to do something that has, you know, a uh, lasting impact and blah, blah, blah. And because of their unwillingness or, or my own unwillingness to do that, they end up having no impact. Do yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, all right, so let's say bands that are one hit wonder. Well, would you rather be a one hit wonder or a zero hit wonder? Yeah. And I think that's just a creative, a, a thing that creative people struggle with overall that like you want to do something that's original, but I think that all great art borrows from somewhere else. Right. And, and it's not that it's a hundred percent original, but even that, you know, 10% that you change to make your own, that's what makes it original. And also just doing it great. You have to be like the best at what you're doing, whatever your lane is, whatever your niche is, just be great at it. Well, here's I'll give you a Jesse Cannon moment then. Yeah. Uh, he he said, Gabe is the only person who I've ever told you should stop singing because you're terrible at it. Oh my God, so true. Yeah. <laughs> I was so bad. When yeah. when did that happen? And I mean, I guess how do you um, you know, let's let's say that you are not uh Demi Lovato where you clearly have like this just amazing voice that speaks for itself. Where how, where do you fit in as a musician with that in mind? Well, let's talk about my singing. So the funny thing is when I was, you know, going back to humble beginnings, when I, I was telling a story today randomly, by, by chance, but when I was in humble beginnings, I was the bass player and I wrote the songs with my guitar player singer. We both sang together. And then I think Jesse probably at that point told me you got to start stop singing. So he really became the singer. He was a good singer and I was, I was bad. Um, 
And, uh, and then I got kicked out of the band. I was more like the Pete Wentz figure in that band, where it's like, I was a bass player. I didn't sing, but I wrote and everyone knew me. Right. So people were confused. Yeah. Are you the singer? Are you, you know, you're, you're the bass player. Like, you know, uh, cause I was very outgoing and, and you know, I, I love people. I've talked to people and, you know, he was a little more shy. So I think eventually our relationship broke down. I think he was threatened by that and he had me kicked out of the band. So then I was like, oh, that's never going to happen to me again. I need to learn how to sing. So mm-hmm. I remember I was in college and I didn't know Jesse Rita by then, but I was in college and I joined the Glee Club so that I could learn some technique because I was a punk rocket. You know, I sang out of yeah. necessity and then, and then I had to learn how to sing. And really what I learned about singing is that I just had no chill. You know, it's like, you can't sing if you have no chill and you're just screaming and you're like this excited, like ADD punk rock kid who's just like, you know, so I it really, my life's journey has been to just learn how to chill. And it's still hard for me to this day, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, you know, slowly, I think I just started to develop that part of it is your ear. Part of it is, is understanding, you know, like hearing the notes differently and also having the, the vocal control to go in between the notes. Even if you can hear them differently, you still have to have the technique. And that's practice. Some people have it naturally. For me, I had no natural ability. um, So I had to like really practice much more than other people. Um, And eventually I figured it out. But I think for me, like um, what what makes me a musician, I don't even know if I call myself like a musician, but I think like what makes me an artist is, is just creation. Like I feel like as a songwriter, I feel like I, when I visualize a song, I can see the parts, I can, I can understand how things fit together. You know, there's like some people when it comes to songwriting, like they, you know, the bigger picture of how things work together, the symmetry, the 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 parts working together, it doesn't all make sense. But for me, like I kind of see the puzzle in my head. So I think that's that's also what made me successful as a writer too. And now when I work with artists, I see that too, working with young artists, like being able, they're working something, they come up with a great idea and they don't yet have the skill set to like really flesh it out. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that, that is, 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 I guess the part of my creativity that I think does work. Yeah. And there's other people who are the opposite, who are maybe incredible players or singers or performers, but don't have good taste. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, yeah, there's no accounting for taste and you have to have good reference points. You have to like, you know, you like, the talent to me is like all about the choices, right? And choices are like what you're not doing, right? So great players are like great noodlers that just will not play, you know, like will not stop playing. And it's like, that's yeah. not good. It's like, you know, I, I think it was Miles Davis who said this is like music is the notes you don't play. So, so I, I think that just putting all that together in, in the creative processes is, is, um, it's hard. It's not as easy. And I think I just, I had a knack for that. I'm like, I've always been just a, a big picture kind of guy. Um, and I, I think I've approached music in the same way too. And also like my heroes, my favorite artists, they all couldn't sing, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's like, you know, or they had weird quirky voices, right? Like, you know, so, so I, I like that more. I like more when you can hear somebody's soul come through their voice as opposed to like a pristine natural singer. I think that kind of uh, big picture producer CEO kind of mindset is uh, a skill set or a point of view that's not respected as much as it should be. For example, like, you know, I did a video about Avril Lavigne. I don't know if you saw it, but um, one of the criticisms of her was, oh, she doesn't write all her own stuff. She's got these songwriters, blah, blah, blah. But I would argue that that's actually what makes me respect her is that she said, well, my job, my name is going to be on the cover of this album. 
my job is to make this the best fucking album it can be. If that means I write the song, cool. If that means I get, you know, Feldman or The Matrix to write it, cool. My job is to make sure I deliver a great fucking album. And I, and I feel like for whatever reason, people feel like that's, um, you know, <laughs> dishonest or shady. It's like if you didn't write every single note of the album yourself, then it's not real or something. Does which she is write any of her stuff? She has co-writing on, I think, every single song. Yeah. So what's the problem? You know, whether uh, there's no way to know what she actually wrote unless you were there in the studio. And, uh, also, you know. that's a little bit unfair just because, you know, with a band, you're always co-writing with your band. Right. So it's like if, when you don't have a band and you're a solo female musician, it's you know. Right. She's, you know, her band might be a little more fluid. Which is okay. Right. Unless she happens to, you know, play every instrument, you know, super well herself. But I guess my, my point is that I respect people who put out a great product, whether they play every note or write every note of it to me is secondary. You know, maybe there's a few freaks out there, but the creative process is always collaborative, right? I mean, whether it says that so-and-so, you know, had co-writing on a song, like every single song at some point or another, you send it to your friend and you're like, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, does that mean that that art is now tainted and it's not yours anymore and it's not valid? I just think it's very strange that people, it's another one of these dogmatic beliefs that people have that, you know, there can only be one creator attached to this and they have to do absolutely all of it or it isn't valid art. I get where it comes from, though, on the other side, just like, you know, I think that there are some times where, um, you know, an artist will just be just a face and there's not their their ideas in the music sure. at all. But I think if you're involved in the songwriting in some way and it's your vision, I think there's I think that's fine. You know, and, and if you it depends on how you present it, too. Uh, did Whitney Houston ever present herself as a songwriter? I don't think she did. I think she was right. a performer and one of the best right. of all time. You know, you just want to hear Whitney Houston sing, whether she wrote, like, I don't care whether she wrote the song or not. Uh, it's, it seems like kind of a rock thing specifically that they get very fixated on this. Well, it's, it's a, it's a punk thing. I, mean, I think that goes to like the other thing about the voice, right? Like people are into Whitney Houston because of like, the proficiency of her voice, the tech, the technical parts of her voice. Right. Whereas like punk rock is the opposite. It's like, Hey, right. we're not so technical, but we have passion and the passion comes from our ideas. So if those ideas are not represented in the music, then what is this? Right. That's so, true. so I see, I see both sides, but I'm a Libra. I like to see all sides. <laughs> <laughs> if only people knew how uh, many of their favorite bands didn't play on their own records. And if only they knew, if only some of the bands you themselves did, they didn't play on their record. Exactly. It's true. <laughs> I'm friends with a lot producers. of producers, yeah, you know, and exactly. there's plenty of where it's like, God, so-and-so just left. Thank God. I had to redo all the guitars. I didn't tell them. Yeah. It happens, happens more than you think. Yeah. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean the band's bad, but, you know, just recording in the studio is just such a different skill set than playing live. You know, it's just different energy. Yeah. To, or guess, f- you have to for example, with it's very, very, very common that one person will play all the guitars and basses on an album. They'll bring everyone into the studio. Okay, everyone play this part. Whoever sounds best, all right, you're playing everything on this album. Because it just sounded best that day. Does that mean that the other guitarist in the band sucks and, you know, is invalid? No, it just means that on that day, the other person sounded better in the studio. And so our job is to make the best record we can. So that means this person's playing everything. Yeah, and just like, I guess the way we're used to even listening to music today, it's like, 
it's less about the idea of capturing a recording of this band doing their thing. And it's more about like the recording itself is its own art form. Exactly. Yes, exactly. It's just, it's a different thing than, than playing a show. So this is kind of a weird question, but um, I, I, I'm going to ask it because weirder, just, weirder than, weirder than the, you can't sing question. Oh, I have, I have a <laughs> super, I have a, a question that's so weird that I'm not even going to ask it cause it's too off putting yeah, and okay. weird. I'll okay. tell you, I'll tell you later. Um, but yes, weirder than that one. So, because I just don't have anybody else, uh, on the pod- podcast could ask, but wh- what is it like being famous at that level, which is a, a level higher than. I think pretty much anybody I know. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a mindfuck, right? Um, I remember like I was on vacation, um, in Mexico with, with my girlfriend at the time for my birthday and we were watching TV, you know, it's like, and I was just having like a chill, like not touring, just a nice little vacation with my girlfriend and and she fell asleep, and I was just watching MTV as like the top twenty countdown. They start talking about this band from New York, blah blah. blah. And I speak Spanish, so I don't understand what he's saying. And he's like, and it's like in the number one spot, it's Cobra Starship. I'm like, what the fuck is going on right now? So there's like a little bit of a surreal part of it where it's like it feels like it's just happening to you, like it's a little bit of like an out of body thing. And then the other part of it is like the attention, right? Having so many eyeballs and people like. For people who who didn't come from the culture that you came from, so they have a different reference point. Right, right. So like, but what I will say is that the scene kind of prepares you for that because the scene in a lot of ways is a microcosm for that. You know, it's like, it's like there's so many people with shit to say, like based on what you do when you come from the scene. Like I remember when, when I went from humble beginnings to Midtown, you know, people call those scene hoppers on message boards. I'm like, you know, <laughs> so it was like, it was like, yeah, I think that doing something that's creative in the public eye, um, having done in a scene first prepares you for it. So from that sense, I think I was prepared, you know, I had been touring before, so we we're touring at a different level. You know, I, I think that, um, yeah, it's a mind fuck, but it's cool. I'm not going to say I, I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. There's probably a lot worse things than, uh, being in people magazine. Yeah, there's a great letter that Frank Sinatra wrote to George Michael when George Michael was complaining about being famous. And he's like, you know what you complain about when it's like when when you're playing the small club and there's like just the bartender and the janitor at the club. Right. So. So, yeah, I feel like very grateful for it. So even the times that were difficult and like did strain my mental health, I still feel lucky to have had those experiences. Well, you mentioned that you did some work on yourself that uh, maybe prepared you for that or, or helped you handle it a little bit better. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, depends on if you want to go, but, but, um, let's but go deep. Let's go I want to hear the, okay. I want to hear the real shit. Yeah. I mean, listen, the weird thing about the, the fame thing is that like, especially on our second album was a lot of like, of like talking about celebrity culture and talking about like, like being famous. And it's weird. I was writing that stuff when I wasn't that famous yet. You know, we had done a little bit six on a plane stuff. Um, but but that kind of just like egged, egged it all on. Um, but it takes its toll, right? You stop, the hardest thing about it, I think, is that you stop kind of knowing what's real. You stop knowing like who your real friends are, like, right? So you can even go into a situation that like you might be in a room where no one knows who you are, but you're wondering, does someone know who mm-hmm. I am? Are they going to like write something about me? Like that I look like, sh- sh- whatever, who knows? Um, yeah. yeah, so 
I got, I think what really helped me was I got into ayahuasca and that was really what, uh, what, what changed mm. my life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've never actually, I've, I've heard, you know, <clears throat> Rogan and whoever else talk about this, but I've never mm. actually known somebody personally who did it. So did you go down to the Amazon or whatever? Or? Yeah, I did. I've done three dietas. I've done, I think I've done ayahuasca close to like 200 times now, I think. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. yeah. I've been doing it for, since I was 27. At this point. So your, your third eye is like the size of a grapefruit. I wouldn't say that. I would just say that it, you know, it's like a, it, it's like a practice like anything else, you know, it's just you, you, anytime I think someone goes and has any kind of experience that's like spiritually helps them or is like a self-help kind of thing. And they go to like a weekend course retreat or some kind of thing. They come back and they feel like, wow, I feel so clear. I feel positive. Like I'm not negative about things. And then slowly that stuff starts to creep in. So for me, it's like, it's hard to exist in this world that we live in with like the level of uh, neuroses and stimulation and stress that we have without kind of falling victim to negative habits. So I think it's for me, it's just a way to, to keep that. It's like a car wash, you know, if so you never wh- wash your is, car, eventually. Yeah, yeah. What is the ayahuasca experience for anyone who may not be familiar? The, the whole thing? I'll tell you the whole, yeah, the, whole the sh- thing. Short, short, short version of it. What, what exactly the is it? The short version is it's a tea that is made in a ceremonial, if, you, if you're right, in a ceremonial traditional way by Amazonian shamans or, or, or curanderos. And it, it has a psychoactive component, uh, which is the DMT molecule, which is, it's a molecule that exists everywhere in nature and it's created in your brain. It gets released twice in your life, once when you're born and once when you die. So people talk about it like a spirit molecule, that it connects you to the piece of you that that is beyond your your physical existence. And that, in your experience, is that that's, that's an accurate description of it. Like it is what people say? Yeah, you go, <clears throat> ayahuasca literally means the vine of the dead you know, or the vine of the souls. So when you do ayahuasca, the, you go to a place that's beyond your, your life, right? So you experience something on a different level. I don't know, if it, is it real or not? Who knows? Yeah. But the thing that's interesting is that you keep going to that same place, right? It's not like every time it's like you're tripping and like, you see like, you know, like I'm not, I don't, uh, I don't, it's funny. I was never like into psych- any psychedelics. I don't, I don't smoke weed. I'm, I come yeah. from punk rock. I don't really like hippies, you know? So like, so, but this is like really the most hippie thing I could do, but it's hard. It's hard for a lot of people. I used to, I used to talk about it a lot because I was like, oh my God, this thing exists. It's unbelievable. You can get so much information. And now I just realized it's just, it's just not for everybody. It's, it's, yeah. it's not easy. You and know, like I don't vomiting and shit, right? Sometimes you vomit. Yeah. Some people vomit. Not every time, you know? Okay. It depends how much, how but much it's like not, how prepared it, you come to the service. It doesn't sound like a chill experience though. Not, not chill. You go in there to, to fight your demons. The reason why I don't consider it a drug is because all other drugs, when you take it, you feel great. And then afterwards, you feel bad. Ayahuasca, when you take it, you feel bad. And then after you feel great. So it's medicine. To me, it's medicine. right? And they call it medicine. We can't call it medicine, I think, legally. But, but right. you know, it's medicine. It tastes bad going down. Tastes bad when you throw it up. You're like, it makes you feel terrible when you're doing it. But afterwards, you, you, you feel amazing. That's, it's complete, interesting. Completely renewed. I hear these, uh, you know, people on Joe Rogan, these weirdo scumbag comedians and stuff talking about how it changed their life. And I'm skeptical of anything that those people say. Um, but hearing it from you, I go, well, all right, maybe there's something to it. Yeah, I, no, I mean, there is for sure something to it. That's without a doubt. Um, the question is, is it, do you need it? Right. Um, yeah. I, I think I needed it. I had a lot of demons. I feel like that I needed to just like cleanse. Yeah. 
So and, that's definitely and, what, what fame does to you. Yeah. And if you were doing it back then, that was quite a bit before it was, I don't know if we'd call it mainstream now, but uh, it's, that was before it had the level of awareness that it does now. Yeah. I mean, it was starting, it was starting to get big, but no, now it's huge. It's huge. Got it. It seems to me that there's a lot of people who kind of get addicted to whatever level of fame that they're at, where it's like obvious, you know, you see these people just kind of um, their lives spiraling out of control. And you're like, dude, well, why don't you just like, especially people with money, I get it if you still have to go out there and do this because it's the only way that you can make a living. But, you know, these people whose lives are in a shambles and you're like, dude, you should probably just stop being in the spotlight and like retreat and go work on yourself. And a lot of people just seem to be unable to do that because, you know, there's a part of them that needs the validation that comes with fame. Uh, at least that's how it seems, you know, from the outside. Have you seen anything like that? Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent, it's a drug, you know, fame is a drug, right? That's why like people that are famous fall into drugs, right? Because when they don't feel that high of the attention and that energy, they need something else to take its place. So um, ayahuasca is like known for healing people with addictions, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have an addiction, the power, the power of ayahuasca, I'll tell you why, why ayahuasca is so powerful and why the psychedelic component is actually important. So I remember the second time I was doing ayahuasca, I was like crying for four hours straight and the shaman came up to me and he goes, you know, how are you doing? And I go, honestly, I'm just so sad. And he's like, that's okay. You know, your sadness is there to teach you something. Right? Ask it what its name is. Ask it what it wants. And if I wasn't fucked up on ayahuasca, you told me to ask my sadness what its name was. Yeah. I'd be like, what are you talking about? You know. <laughs> so, but but what really happens is that the psychedelic component allows you to personify your emotions, right? So when you personify it, like you give it human qualities. And that's why people see like, you know, some kind of visions of people or, or fairies or whatever people see, you know, but, but they, they're able to personify their emotions by, by personifying it, by putting a face on it then you can interface with it, right? Mm -hmm. Then you can have that conversation. Sadness, who are you? Why are you here, right? And you don't feel like ridiculous doing it. You're like talking to a piece of you that's not really you, that's like come, it's like a spirit that has come and taken over you and really controlling you, your sadness or whatever, your addiction, right? So you're able to see, who are you addiction? Where do you come from? Why are you here? Can you fuck off? And then just like that, it's gone, right? And that's the power of it. It allows you to see, it's like a, huge spotlight which is makes it also very scary because if you've been in a dark room for 20 years and then all of a sudden you're going to have the, the most powerful spotlight in the world first your eyes are going to burn you're like it's going to be ah and then when you open your eyes you're going to see you've just been living your own filth for 20 years you're going to be scared by it right so mm -hmm. um it's it's a hard thing it's it's not it's not an easy thing i don't recommend it for everybody i mean it's a pretty dramatic step uh it didn't seem like your life was in such a bad place that, you know, you needed to like pull the emergency brake or anything. Maybe it was, what was it? What led you to do that of all things? I was definitely in, in a place where mentally, like my health wasn't there. I was very depressed, you know, and, and it's, and it's weird because my whole thing was like, you know, we Cobra Starship was the party band. It was fun. Forget about your problems. But my problems started, kept accumulating. Right. And, you know, I definitely went through things that, that were hard and uh, I didn't have the tools at my disposal to deal with them or the support system. Right. So luckily I, I found ayahuasca and that really helped me. Well, if we wanted to go full Joe Rogan, then we'd start talking about like how strong chimps are and uh, 
I don't know, maybe Hillary Clinton having people killed or something, but uh, we, we won't go well, there. We won't go there now. We'll yeah, there. we won't go there. I, that's that's uh, if I am listening to Rogan, that's the part where I'm like, all right, I'm done the, done with this episode. <laughs> but his Michael so, Pollan interview was was amazing. Michael Pollan, is, he's written a lot about about psychedelics. I I don't listen to any of the ones with the psychedelic people anymore because I just uh, maybe I'm just the dogmatic uh, punk guy. But I'm just like, all right, I've heard this a million times. I get it. I did ask yeah. my psychiatrist about this though, who is you know, is he is a psychiatrist, so he's an actual MD, and he's a pretty he also has a JD. He does like forensic law and stuff. So he's a pretty like hard nosed, like no bullshit guy I was like, is there anything to this? And he was like, yeah, definitely. Like, we don't know what yet, but yeah, I thought it was bullshit too, but I looked into it and there's definitely some promising stuff, you know, with psychedelics. So stay tuned. Yeah. yeah. There are companies, I think uh, in, in Portland, I think it was legalized to do use psychedelics for psychiatric medicine. Which yeah, there's there's a guy, he said down the street or down the hall from his office that treats people with ketamine. So it's, uh, I guess it's the real deal. Well, before I let you go, uh, tell us what is next for, you know, for you, whether that's Cobra Starship, the artist group, anything else you're involved with, what's next? Man. Oh, well, I have the new Cobra Starship song coming out on the 19th. There's like, there's two that came from the vault. One's out, one's coming out the 19th, which is the one that I think is a banger that I think is a lot of fun. Then I'll probably be on the internet for like another, like three weeks and then I'll disappear again for a few years. Smart. Um, yeah. And I'll just binge watch uh punk rock NBA on YouTube. All right. Um, and then I'm just going to keep building, building my company. I mean, I love coming into work every day. I love seeing the people I work with and I love just helping other artists. That's really it. Cool. My, yeah. Thanks for stopping by. I know you got a lot of things going on. Appreciate that you made the time for this and uh, appreciate the support. Yeah. Thank you, dude. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? 
fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.